0: This podcast is brought to you by Google for Games. It takes more than a collection of tools to help you bring your gaming vision to life. With cross-platform solutions that give you access to billions of potential players around the world, Google is your partner to create great games, connect with players, and scale your business. Visit g.co slash Google for Games or go to the link in the podcast description below. And if you ask me, Google for games is the destination to learn more about game solutions and latest research and insights from Google's gaming teams to help you achieve your goals. If you're not driving or working out while listening to this podcast, I really suggest you fire up that browser and check out Google for games. Let's pause this podcast for a moment because I need to talk to you. That's right, you. Are you ready? Good. So, you're an indie game developer, and you need funding to help you launch and market your game. No problem, right? There should be one place where you can get funding and resources, but there really hasn't been one, until now. Our friends at Exola have launched Exola Funding Club, which you should check out ASAP. Sola Funding Club is matchmaking service for developers, investment firms, and groups, as well as video game publishers. They have a simple process. Developers apply to join the Funding Club. Once they are accepted, their applications are sent directly to interested investors looking to invest into video games. Games just like yours. It's a win-win situation. Qualified developers get their game pitches placed in front of funding sources while investors discover curated games that meet their criteria for the investment portfolio. Ready to get started? Just head over to exola.pro/funding, or find the link in the episode description and apply today. Exola Funding Club. Putting the fun back in funding.
1: Welcome to TWIG196. You're stuck with me again as your host. i um, probably the most boring host on this podcast. <laughs> my my lull Canadian uh, accent. Um, but uh, let's just jump right into it. Do you guys got any personal updates? Um, what's new?
2: I have one. Not really. I'm, so I've been in London anyway. eight years. So I was in Germany before that. And that's how, um, that's how Adam and I met. And I'm actually moving to Seattle at the end of October.
3: Oh, wow. Congrats!
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. So it's like you're you're gonna move permanently well, in Seattle? I mean,
2: what what does permanently really mean? Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the intention of trying it out for a year, but all of my stuff will be there, and I'll have my home base there. So it's like mostly permanently.
1: Have you checked out any of like the districts right now? or anything? Like, do you know where you where abouts you So I'm gonna
2: live? live in an area called South Lake Union, which is about a 25 minute walk from my office. So central. Okay. It's. Yeah. It's central. There's a Whole Foods. Gotta love a Whole Foods. What more could you ask for? Done. (laughs) You
1: got a Whole Foods? You're done? Okay. Uh, Uh, Super, anything new? Uh,
3: Just just getting back into the groove after a month in Europe. uh, Jet lag was not super uh, traumatizing. Uh, Managed to navigate that pretty well, so happy about that. Uh, Yeah, just uh, things picking up. It was a slow, slow summer, I think, and now it's, it's, uh, it's very frenetic and chaotic. But I like it so very busy now, um, which is a good thing. And I'm, I'm happy that, uh, I'm happy that the uh, universe uh, allowed me to have a slow, slow, uh, slow moving vacation.
1: Oh, that's good. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, all of this shit is now <laughs> spiking up well, again. Well, it's, it's not just this. It's there's, um, a,
3: there's the. I mean, I don't want to dig into the weeds too much, but there's the. Uh, America Data Privacy and Protection Act that uh, kind of made it through the Energy and Commerce Committee. It's got a lot of implications, very serious implications for uh, digital advertising. So that's like a big kind of looming um, change, and that'll probably go to the House uh, for a vote. Uh, it seems like it's there's bipartisan support for it. It's probably going to go to a vote. Probably going to pass, I think. But anyway, there's just a lot of stuff going on. It's a very, very uh, busy time.
1: Okay, well, I guess we should just jump right into it. Uh, do you want to start off on the, the Unity? Yeah.
3: Thing? So uh, more more drama uh, in this in this saga. So uh, as we remember last week, uh, AppLovin made an essentially unsolicited offer uh, to buy Unity. Uh, effectively, um, it, they called it a merger, but AppLovin shareholders would have owned uh, the majority of the company. Uh, and Unity rejected it on Monday. They, John Ricciello, went on CNBC, and the the company published uh, a blog post and said the board had had considered it, but that it, and they had analyzed it, and that they determined that it, the Applevin's proposal, did not uh, meet the criteria to being a superior proposal, which is a term in the merger agreement that basically gave either party the right. To cancel the transaction should uh, should a, uh, an, an offer that was deemed to be more beneficial more uh, more beneficial to shareholders emerge. So the board determined that it was it did not meet that standard and they rejected it. They rejected it kind of in a public way, which to my mind says they're probably shutting the door on it. But who knows? Maybe there will be a follow up offer. Um, and uh, I think um, kind of revisiting that whole. Initial uh, transaction, you know, announcement with IronSource. I, my sense is that that's probably the right decision. Um, I, I think, you know, I when I first covered the 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 IronSource Unity transaction, I didn't really uh, include any commentary. It was just sort of an overview of the transaction. But kind of digging back in, and this was sort of the impetus for this was something that Jr. said, and I'll, I'll just pull up. Uh, the article I published today called Unrequited Lovin', which I'm, I'm very proud of that title. Um, but uh, it was a great title. So I, just, I, I just published this this morning about the rejection. But what Jr. said in, the, in his appearance on CNBC kind of um, instigated this curiosity for me. And so I'll, I'll, I'll read his quote. We present a balanced. He's talking about the Iron Source deal and why he thinks that's better. Um, so basically with this deal, we present a balanced portfolio where about half of our business is related to monetization. But the heart and soul of the company around content creation is the other half of the business. Now, you might remember when this transaction was first announced, a lot of people said, oh, OK, Unity is accepting its fate as an ad tech company. It's not a, it's not a content creation company. It's an ad tech company merging with iron source kind of. Uh, you know, um, it, it sort of it, it forces it to 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 recognize that, right? It's an ad tech company. It's not a it's not a create creator company, and act, that's not what JR saying. JR saying actually, no. With the Iron Source deal, we have a more balanced business. Fifty percent of our revenues come from creation. Fifty percent come from, uh, you know, monetization and and and, and growth. And and in within the Unity structure, there's kind of two business units. There's operate, which is the ad. Tech stuff, it's the advertising and the monetization, and there's Create, which is the engine, and, and WIDA. Um, and the reason he says that it's more balanced if the Iron Source transaction goes through is because in the Iron Source, in this combined company, they take Iron Source's Supersonic Games publishing business and put that in the Create business unit, right? And so essentially, what they do is they gain kind of a scaled and growing publishing business that they can classify as, you know, kind of creator tools, right? Which, which I think makes sense on its face and the ad tech stuff gets combined as well, but the overall revenue split goes to 50, 50. And why is that preferable? Because content creation platforms get valued at a higher multiple than ad tech companies. Ad tech, ad tech is low margin. It's very transactional content creation, you know, invokes like this big upside of actually scaling big, content and, and getting a piece of it, getting getting a percentage of that revenue, right? And so I think the framing of this is important. And I think it only got clarified in the rejection of the AppLovin offer because you might say, well, AppLovin operates a big app's portfolio. It's actually the majority of its revenue. Uh, that in combination with the engine would also be, uh, you know, p- would, would put the split at more than 50% in the Create side. But what I argue in my piece was like, yes, that's true. But AppLovin has said They said last quarter, Q1, that they're actively divesting assets there. They're looking to sell some of those assets. They want to actually, my sense is they probably want to move out of that space. They want that revenue uh, proportion within their own business to decrease with respect to apps versus uh, what they call the software platform. And so, and that's first party published. Those are first, in the majority, those are first, that revenue is first party published games. Now, it's very different to have a publishing business where it's second party. Right, where you say, hey you give me a game, I'll distribute it, I've got the tech, I've got the monetization expertise, I'll distribute your game for you, but I'm not uh, I don't build games, I don't compete with you. That's very different and that's what you achieve with the iron source Unity deal then with app where we say, well we actually operate games so you're going to build games on our engine but you're going to compete with us right And that might actually cause a lot of tension and, and cr- potentially creative rift within the developer community uh, for Unity's engine customers right So my sense is, for that reason if you look at it as an opportunity to sort of restructure the business, make it more about capturing the upside of the content while also not competing directly with the developers that use the engine, right? Cuz that's an important part of that feedback loop, then the iron source deal probably does make more sense. And I think that was clarified with this rejection and clarified with some of the comments that JR made.
1: Yeah, all makes sense to actually distance themselves from competing against their direct customers.
3: Yeah, and there was there was there were two good I would I want to call out two really uh helpful articles uh in considering the app loving offer the first is on seeking alpha the title is app loving and unity not loving this unity (laughs) by the way this 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 this, uh all of this like uh hubbub and and this like transaction drama has brought to the surface the worst puns i've ever seen like in in such a high volume it's shocking that that like so many people could come up with bad puns uh so quickly. And the other one is from super used. Um, and it's called actually, oh, wait, he, uh, maybe this is where I stole my, my title from his, his article is titled, and this is published like a week ago, app lovin's unrequited love for unity. So maybe I subconsciously stole my article title from him. Um, sorry about that (laughs) use, but he had, he had a really good piece, uh, as well, looking at the, looking at this more from like a, a financial perspective. Um, but anyway, I wanted to call attention to those two pieces. They're very much worth reading.
1: Um, okay, so in, in other news, uh, Supercell. So they just announced today uh, Clash Quest is going to be ending development. So this is one of the three big announcements. I think that happened last year um, from Supercell. This was the puzzle RPG or the Legend of Soul Guard um, style game uh, that they announced. Um, and it's been in soft launch for quite a while. And it's really flatlined at about a $1.36 RPI in Canada, uh, which to be honest is actually fairly in line with the the cap that Soul Guard hit, which was about a buck seventy in Canada. Um, the Sensor Tower estimated retention was sixty percent D one, but then actually trailed off pretty quickly. So ten percent D thirty, which in, in face value could be okay, but then six percent D sixty. So all pretty much signaling that you know amazing upfront supercell retention of all these players, uh, but the decay afterwards being steeper than most. They also recently reset their entire economy to see if they could get something going, Um, a bigger swing on economy changes, and it just seems like that didn't work. After the change, uh, revenue, daily revenue was just never the same. Laura,
2: so I I just re-downloaded it, and I haven't. I mean, I've given it a couple, um, maybe twenty-five minutes play, and I really like this game. (laughs) I mean, I liked it when it first came out, and I'm not, but I'm not surprised it didn't it didn't, it's not, they're not going to, you know, they're not going to release it worldwide because at the moment I still can't get it in um, the U.S. app store. I can only grab it in from Australia. And, but I did notice a couple of changes since since soft launch. And I think I kind of stand by my original theory, which I feel like this was a really confused audience. And we talk a little for the topics today, I think we'll dig into a little bit later. And I think if we jump back to see how potentially Maybe reevaluating the audience and the opportunity may have made a difference for this game. But again, I think this was, I think this was a, I call it a confused audience. I don't have a better term. And I think the opportunity was too small. This strikes, the game just struck me as way too casual for mid core enthusiasts. And I just don't think they would have been able to effectively move any of their players from their mid core titles to this game um, that, and then also keep it. Basically, uh, cost effective and incremental to their to their um, their basically their network revenue. From from the changes I've noticed, and again, this is this is a very high level playthrough. I mean, they didn't really change they didn't really change any of the core, and they probably, based on those retention numbers, didn't think they needed to. They did they did look a little bit at, at changing the meta. Not not they didn't actually change the the fundamentals of it, but. They changed a little bit of the map progression. They definitely sped up the animation, so everything feels a lot faster than it did in the first version. They add what I think. What my my second working theory is that to try to. Um, try to combat that decay I think a lot of people think well if the if the tail is not good then we need to be giving players mid to long-term goals and I did notice that they started to add in a narrative quest layer and that would be my theory as to one one way they were trying to fix that but again it goes back to the people that are playing this I I just don't think that a narrative layer is super compelling for them Um, Anyway, I, I'm, I'm sad I liked this game, I'm, I'm sad it won't be. they're going to be uh, shutting it down, but again, I'm not really surprised.
1: Um, yeah, but also I, I appreciate that Supercell kind of gave it the space to kind of take as many big swings at, at that to try yeah. to fix that game. Um, yeah, and I still believe in the puzzle RPG space. Um, I, I just feel like the DNA of this game was trying to be too casual, completely agree with you. And the systems, like it, it, it should have firmly operated in the collectible RPG lane. Um, more like an Empire puzzle Puzzles what, uh, which would have mean more modes um, and much more or like the more
2: mid-maxing like ahead. there's not there's not much yeah. like, you can't optimize so much and I think that would have made it a different more depth and maybe a different dimension that would have appealed what would have appealed probably to more mid-core audience
3: what was the last game Supercell launched Brawl
1: Stars
2: well about right. like, where was when was I'm Everdale saying, released
1: it wasn't worldwide released it was still, still in soft, soft launch, launch. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they've just got a lot in the hopper in soft launch, yeah. um, especially after that announcement of those three titles. I haven't seen that action RPG that they, they talked about then, but the other ones have all been soft launched. Um, I guess just to give a quick update on those, um, so Clash Mini has pretty much flatlined at about a buck fifty in Canada, like it, it's very very flat. So that really suggests to me that they're they're having a hard time in soft launch, um, especially on the retention side. Um, sensor Tower is estimating 60% D1, 8% D30, um, so suggesting even a faster decay than Clash Quest. Um, I didn't actually check up on Everdale. I should have done that. Um, the last I checked, the, the RPI trend was still pretty low, um, so I'm assuming it's still sticking out in Soft Launch. And um, the Boom Beach Frontlines, which is actually a, a Space 8 game, um, actually... Plateaued at about a buck twenty-five in Canada in RPI, and I think now has opened up to a lot more countries. But so far, the RPI trend still seems pretty low. Um, any thoughts, guys, on Soul?
2: I mean, I, I got really got kind of hooked on Everdale. Um, I haven't played it in a while, but it's super. It's cute. I mean, I'm getting a little lost in terms of what I should be doing. I don't really have an end goal, but I like it.
1: Yeah. Um, so yeah, this week I didn't really see a ton of headlines. So. Uh, What I wanted to do is actually open up a debate topic I've had with a lot of PMs in my work, um, which is really that new game development obviously is very, very difficult. Climate is pretty tough. And navigating early production is pretty treacherous, um, especially if you don't, say, have data to cut through politics and endless debate over new game design decisions. Um, so early development can feel pretty open and free and exciting initially, but those of us who have gone through enough cycles know that early development due to lack of you know, uh, clear feedback really can go wrong. And it's very likely that you don't understand those problems until it's too late. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I think one tool that gets relied upon to kind of de-risk that early development um, has been market research. And there are a ton of potential sources of this data, but here are some examples of what I kind of um, map out as market research. Um, for example, estimating interest in a concept by surveying your target audience, like presenting a panel with a concept or a list of concepts and asking them which sparks their interest. Um, interviewing your target audience and identifying what they believe are the most important features to get right. Um, talking to players you know, of, of in your genre, so match three CC RPG games. Um, Another example, doing market research studies on specific demographics to see how their behaviors change to identify potential new genres to grow, and as well, bucketing players into different psychological profiles, so say builders versus explorers versus socializers, and then mapping games onto a scatter graph to say which type of psychographic profile best matches that game. Um, Ultimately, they're all commonly used to kind of validate or invalidate product pillars, um, validate market sizing, and drive product strategy. But my big question is really should it? Um, And I think the discussion I'd like to have with you guys is really what is the right balance or right level of use for market research, especially early in game development. Um, My take uh, to start this off, um, my stance is that market research is very, very commonly misused in companies. And it's very easy to kind of fall off and become uh, fall apart under scrutiny or lead into very, very bad assumptions in game development. Um, Note here, I'm talking about market research, which to me is very different from user research and user testing. User research is a critical tool, not throwing that into this. uh, Measurement of players' actual reactions when they have something concrete is absolutely critical. Uh, I'm really talking about surveys and other forms of soft data or soft data being sampled data that has self-selecting answers. And I think that's really what's prone to bad data. Um, so for, for things like sampled, it's extremely easy to succumb to sampling bias or assuming extrapolation of your sample set is the entire player base or market. So you survey 500 people in the U.S. and assume that that's the entire worldwide market when that's not the case. Um, and as well, when you're asking those, say, 500 people from the U.S., those are self-selecting answers. Extremely easy, especially for incentivized uh, surveys for players to answer seemingly randomly, right, just to finish the survey. Um, especially if you're randomizing those answers, which you absolutely should do, Um, but it leads to very noisy survey results. Um, And then if if you think of all of this data being very noisy, it leads to bad assumptions of mapping this directly to the market. So I've seen examples where market research has been conducted with a very, very large sample size in multiple countries that said that roughly 20% of players played game A and 80% of players played game B. So you could you know, crudely estimate that game B is, you know, 4x the size of game A. When no, we know that is actually not a fact at all, right? Like through competitive in- intelligence, the games were closer to like a 100 times difference. And just the nature of self-selecting responses means that there's this baseline of noise in that selection, especially when you randomize, which you, you don't really know when you're trying to use this data. So trying to map the two of them becomes impossible. And then on top of that, in terms of just survey data, players just do not know what they want, right? Don't actually know what drives these things. So you ask players of collectible RPGs what they want, and they'll answer story and graphics. When we know for a fact, that's not the case. It's mode design and collection pressure that drives long-term retention and spend and the overall success of that genre. Graphics and story are top of the funnel types of responses, not late funnel. So um, the, the misleading part I find with market research is that it usually outputs to something really exciting that gets a lot of executives and a lot of um, product leaders really excited about the type of data that they can see. You can now see like, oh, 80% of Gen Z would play your game or, or 20% of Fortnite players love your game or 50% of respondents said that they would actually pay money in your game um, when like that, none of this stuff could actually map to any KPI in your forecast. So like market research needs to be really upfront about things, especially margin of error, Um, extrapolating from your sample to an entire market and handling this baseline of bad answers really leads to terrible assumptions. So that's where I get into my perspective on market research is that it really has to be taken with a gigantic grain of salt, especially in early development. It can drive, it can drive hypotheses. But those have to be backed up with hard data to really be valid. So my, my perspective here is market research can be used to help a team develop their product pillars with four big butts, but market research has to show big swings because I've seen market research where people are looking at percentage point differences between answers, and those are very likely to be within margin of error, but They can only really signal top of the funnel types of responses, not about long-term retention or spend. Players really don't know what drives their own retention. Uh, Third, but market research values cannot be applied to any forecast. These are two completely different numbers. Do not estimate your uh, product's actual trajectory based on any sort of number from market research. Fourth, market research is not a replacement for genre expertise sitting in your company. So if you're operating in a genre you've never built before, right? this is not a replacement for that. You're going to have to build that core competency either by building games in this space and understanding you're going to fail or hiring in consulting help or hiring in uh, permanent talent, ideally, from this genre. This should then drive thoughtful competitive research and that expertise is then actually translates into seeing what players actually do with their time, what they actually retain on, what they actually spend money on. So my my limited take on where market research and surveys can do is, you know, surveying early leavers within your game to see why they're leaving. Sure, you know, like, but it, ultimately you're going to have to like you're going to have to understand that most players don't really know why they're leaving, right? And you're only going to get a small sample. Surveying end game players in your game or VIPs for the features they want, you know, great. That's a great way of, of making sure that they feel like a part of the community and and trying to take that, of course, with a grain of salt of, of what features they want is not necessarily what's going to drive the most success. Um, but both of these examples are pretty much outside the scope of early development, which is the key question here. And right, like in many of these cases, even if I'm doing these surveys, I still have to back that up with quant data. So that's that's my perspective. It's it's pretty much it's it's leaning very much that market research is, has to be taken with a big grain of salt. Uh Laura? Eric, what do you guys? Think?
2: I love a good debate, and I, unfortunately, I, I agree with you. <laughs> uh, and this is my, my personal opinion, but I, I i completely I completely agree with you. Um, for me, if i if I was going to start something new, what I want to do is reduce as much risk as I can up front, and it's mostly to save on costs and pain later. So, whatever we can rule out early, I'd love to rule out, and then market research is is one way to do that. However, when if it's based on, again, this is, I, I, you know, I want to emphasize the distinction you made. It is not user testing, and it is not like watching users or players play something. It is, it is self-reported survey data. It is so hard, one, to ask the right questions that are not leading, and then two, to, to get players to formulate why they like something. And I've seen it happen where in a player will, you know, will, will ask them what they think of a, of a feature, and they'll, they'll say they hate it but then it generates great spend in the game. And so it's just there's you're entirely right. Everything you do needs to be you needs to be kind of colored also by your experience. There's going to be have to there's a layer of translation that needs to happen that you that you really can't replace by by anything except for people that have done it before and have seen what people say versus what they do and, and the difference between it. Yeah. So again, I completely agree. I think the market research is a tool that's complementary to genre expertise. I think it can make individually, I think they're, they're probably weaker than when, if they're combined. So if you have both, that's probably the best of both worlds. Um, And yeah, it just, it just doesn't, it doesn't really lack, it lacks the why. Um, When I, when I look at like When I've looked at, you know, I've looked at a lot of market research and a lot of it it comes down to this game is relaxing or this game is strategic. And then you look at the actual game, you're like, it's neither of those things. It is, we add stress in or intention is to add stress or the game like relative to, you know, chess or a mid-core game is not strategic at all. So there's just a very, a difference in definitions and how people define terminology that, that we wouldn't be able to translate to something actionable, and I think this this came up a little bit um, in that McKinsey marketing report when people talked about the metaverse. It was mostly self-reported data, on and asking about a topic that really had no that had nothing for for people to really understand exactly what it is. So they they fill in the gaps and the stories in their own head of oh they're asking me a question about I don't know social experiences in a, in a, a potential metaverse. Of course I would like the idea of that, but I'm, I'm creating of what that experience is and not there's, there's, no, there's no playable I'm looking at to define, okay, this is actually what we're asking for. Do you like this specific experience? Um, and yeah, with, with developing product pillars, that's always tough. and market research can help shape them, but it shouldn't be the only input. I think that would be I think that would be very, very risky, very, very risky up front. What I actually find personally more interesting is affinity mapping, and that's because I it, I like seeing what play, where players' actual habits are, and it, I think it's a little bit it's a little bit less about what they're saying and actually what they're doing. So if we're able to look at what they're able what they're playing now in those games, because then yeah, you can use some of the market research again to get to fill out some of the gaps in that, but then you can also kind of drive a couple more hypotheses that I think. I think a little bit more, are more interesting. Um, so that's, I, I guess that's, I mean, I was also very swayed. Um, I think I've mentioned him before, uh, Isai Shmaja did a affinity mapping talk and it was, I found it very, I found it absolutely compelling. And so I'm a little bit on the, I think it should be definitely weighed in as early as possible.
1: Uh, super, you've got your skeptical eyes on. What's your
3: uh, no, I agree with you. I, I agree with you hundred percent. I think, um, So I I think to my mind, like market research is sizing of the opportunity and it's not, I think interviewing people uh, uh, like any kind of like, uh, you know, feedback, like uh, qualitative feedback, like especially written feedback, um, you know, focus groups, I just kind of dismiss that outright. And I think a lot of times what you see is, and what's actually kind of uh, toxic is like, you have a PM that really wants to build a game. And so they know that using this kind of like qualitative in these kind of qualitative inputs, um, you know, you can, you can put your thumb on the scale for whatever direction you want. Right. So you say, Oh, we, I want to build, um, just to, you know, I want to build a kids focused, uh, you know, uh, match three game with whatever, uh, I don't know, like some sort of like farming, uh, meta. meta. And th- well, you know exactly how you're going to get good feet. Like who doesn't love kids games? Let's go talk to a bunch of parents. Let's go talk to kids. Are you like games? You kids like games? Like that's the kind of tactics that can be used to just get like all the overwhelming feedback that people love. And like, who's, who's, who's volunteering to go fill those out in the first place. Right. You know what I mean? Like there's just such a skewness and a bias inherent in that. Um, that you can, you can come up with whatever data you want that was qualitatively sourced to support building a game. But like, you don't know if there's 250 million of those people. You just know that there are some people that feel very strongly about this type of game or whatever. Like the best kind of market research that I see is you know, generally when you're thinking about like what kind of mechanic to pursue. Um, and it's, it's quite high level. And you're really looking at like the competitive set and, and and you're you're building some assumptions in uh, about your team's ability to innovate there in a way that sets the game apart, right? So again, going back to your point, Adam, like you need domain expertise, and that's why you saw time after time, like the kind of 2016 period, that all these bigger gaming studios that had success usually in casual were trying to go into core, right? Um, and it never worked. I can't think of a single time that that worked, because you know it's just so difficult to first of all, build anything successful, but second, um, to take all the systems that are already erected to like sort of support, uh, the publishing of one type of game and then allocate those or expand them to, to facilitate another type of game. That's totally different, right? The analytics, the, the, um, you know, all the live ops infrastructure, all that stuff is different. So just even like. Even the plumbing is hard to to utilize, but then just the core competency of the PM. I mean, the economic systems are different. I just I never saw that work. And where you did see it work were cases like Playtico. They just acquired, right? So they just acquired successful existing successful studios. And now I think in this environment, like to your point, Adam, it's really really hard to launch a new game. Um, I you know you you've got to be very rigorous uh, about you know that vetting process. But like all the kind of like opinionated type stuff, or like. You know, we're looking at psychographics, all that stuff. I just dismiss it out of hand. Like, I think people don't know what they want. They don't know what they don't like. They don't know what they like. And you can't trust their sort of qualitative feedback. The, the, the best way to utilize market research is to is to determine, like, what parts of the market you feel, uh, you feel equipped to compete in. And then just test stuff out and get actual data from users.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to push you on the affinity stuff, Laura. So I've, I've done some affinity research um, in my job as well. But what I found was it can also be very misleading, right? Like if, when you take two overlaps of two games, let's say like Candy Crush and Clash of Clans, right? The reality is, is that the for the free-to-play market, when you're only looking at installs, you're not looking at say deep engagement in both, um, everybody's downloaded everything, right? Like. The most popular games that have also downloaded Candy Crush are also the most popular games that have also downloaded Clash of Clans. So we saw things like, hey, Candy Crush and Clash of Clans are actually like one of the top overlapping titles. But does that mean that I should go out and build, you know, a puzzle RPG, right? Is that the largest market? And then is the market just that overlap or is there actually some bleed over, right? Um, So when, when doing Affinity, I think the toughest decision is like, what is your baseline? Like, are you really doing affinity, which is like the Clash of Clans audience has a higher propensity to download um, an idol game than a Candy Crush player, right? And and who is better than or more likely to then answering? Does that make sense?
2: Yeah. And or is that no, just no, no, that, that makes sense. <laughs> I think this is where I think the genre expertise comes in. If I if I saw just in, a, in a hypothetical scenario, if I was you know going to make um, if I saw the Candy Crush players and I, I wanted to make a casual game, would, would loved playing Clash of Clans, I mean, I would rule that out initially. I don't have enough experience in midcore games to figure out why on earth, what, what, what I think would would work and what I think I could fill in gaps that players feel like they're not getting from their current games. Like, I don't think there's an offering I could give them. But what I think is, is interesting is if there's, a, for, for genres that are closer together, so... For example, I think with Wuga and Play- Playrix, I'm, I'm convinced that they saw good affinity mapping between hidden object games and match three, and that's why Wuga dabbled into Switchcraft and Playrix dabbled into Manor Matters because they saw that uh, match three players liked hidden object games and vice versa, and there was there was some there was there there was, there was interest there in at least one genre that they were experts in. That they could that they could reach, a kind of go into a similar genre where they may not have had a ton of experience, but enough that it was still casual. The the audience was similar enough that they could build some confidence in there, and then they could hire in a couple. In the player example, the player example, maybe they could hire in a couple of people that have done hidden object games before, and say, we know this, we know this meta works. We want to have some sort of decoration thing, and we know that hidden object is a compelling core. I think we is I think there's an opportunity here to explore that. That's that's more how I would how I would approach it. But again, that's me taking like I've played these games. I I've, I have a pretty good sense of my personal feeling of why they work or why they don't work or why an audience likes them. What's compelling about Match Three? What's compelling about Hidden Object or 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 Blast or whatever it is? And then being able to assess and say. There's enough here where there's, there, there's similar actions or behaviors where we can make something work between the two. That's more, but like Clash of Clans and Candy Crush, I've, I, I would, I'd full, full disclosure, I would just be like, nope, I'm gonna pass on that.
1: And Eric, from, from your perspective, during this early development process, there's also been tools, not market research, but things like concept testing through fake app stores, concept testing through um, testing of like videos, oh. et cetera. Like are those are those tools more valid um, for for giving teams a signal that like their mechanic or or their way of positioning their product would be interesting for? Top yeah, I think all?
3: so. It's I mean it's it's you know robust market feedback. Um, I I think though sometimes again like that it's it's just it's a very sort of narrow view. I think the the mistake that companies make and like I've seen so many of these green light process issues, um, and you know my kind of takeaway thesis from having you know encountered that problem 15 times let's say uh either with companies that i worked at or just having been brought in on a, on engagements to help with this is that you still need a decision maker you're never going to be able to come up with like a spreadsheet that gives you like this clear unequivocal yes build this game output right where everyone in the room is like all right well there it is that's the that's the quantitative uh output that we need it like you still need someone to say you know what like i have skill here i have experience i have a, a, a intuition about the market and based on my assumptions informed by this quality you know quantitative sort of investigation that we've conducted i think this is the right game to make like you still need someone with that agency right that authority and that professional courage right to put their foot down and say, I think we, like that, and a lot of companies just don't have that. Like they have management by committee, especially gaming companies, right? Where the CEO is a product person or whatever. And like a lot of the co-founders are on equal footing or whatever, like there's no one there that can actually own the decision. And, and without that, you'll, th- all of these inputs are just there to, to inform ultimately what is, you know, a, 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 a risk assessment. And you, you still need someone to say, yes, I own this. I'm saying, yes, let's move forward. I think
2: this- for me, this is a throwback to two points. One, there is no simple formula to making a hit game. It doesn't matter what people write. There's just no simple formula. It might be a very, very, very complicated formula, um, but there's no simple formula. Um, and then the second is, this is, I mean, this is why I think Adam and I were in alignment on, in this as well. We talked about remote working versus uh, being in office and being in location. Again, my, my, my experience has has taught me that finding really good talent, either people that are c- confident in their decision makings, have a lot of experience in the areas you want to explore, outweighs everything else. Because I think with good people, you can make great things.
1: Absolutely. Driving that core competency, genre expertise, without that, you're not going to be successful. So let's, <laughs> full stop. Uh, let's make sure that you've got the, the people to build in the genre you're going after. Um, okay so i think we've got one last thing uh eric you want to talk about activision uh
3: no i think we've got three minutes left let's just punt that to next week okay we're
1: done even better That's it. (laughs) yep uh then have a good week everyone um i think most of us are all back next week i'm going to be out um but crest is finally back from his uh european tour changed man he's going to be completely uh Positive, <laughs> <laughs> loving every Gamescom company. Gamescom is next yeah. week. All oh, right. Wait, right. isn't Gamescom. isn't Crest so, going to
3: Gamescom? So he won't he be is. on the pod.
1: So I think they're doing like a live pod, or not live, but they're they're going to record it at Gamescom. Oh no way! Okay, cool. Yeah. So I'm not uh, going to be, be there. there. So you'll be there in your, spirit. En- enjoy your colch <laughs> at the cottage. <laughs> yeah. Enjoy your colch. <laughs> yeah. I'll be at the cottage. That
3: kind of sucks. It's it's would, that that um conference hall is. It's hot. Have you ever been? It'd be like 85 degrees yeah, inside yeah, there. Yeah. And Cologne can be really hot, too.
1: Yep, yeah, And then it's also like that combination of yeah, consumer conference much of a... plus professional conference. So you're like, I don't want it to be 85 with all yeah, of these gamers like
3: around me. Yeah, just like 17-year-old <laughs> kids wearing cargo shorts, like running around screaming, I don't want to be there.
2: Oh, way to kill my, I was looking forward to this. Way to kill any kind well, of optimism sh- I had on the trip.
3: <laughs> I think that the DOF party should be good.
2: That. I'm looking forward to it. That'll
1: be the the highlight. Cool. All right. See you. That's it. Bye. Have a good week. See you guys.
0: Thank you for listening to the whole episode. If you like this podcast, please do leave a comment and share the episode. If you want to access the Deconstructor of Fun community with hundreds of senior games folk, go to our website and apply to the Slack group. And if you want to get notified of all the new content we have coming out every week, do subscribe to the weekly Deconstructor of Fun newsletter. Finally, do remember, we love you guys and we appreciate you guys. Catch you next time.